Welcome to episode 36 of Climactic and our final show of the year. I'm here with co-founder Rich Bowden. Hey, Rich. Hello, Mac, and hello, listeners. And we're going to be running through some of our sort of top moments of the year, coming to the end of this, our first year with the show, and sort of look back on what we've learned from our guests and, and how we're feeling, really. So, yeah. so Rich, in, in a sentence here, you know, with uh, just over a week to go till Christmas, how are you feeling, bud? Uh, <laughs> That's a big one. Yeah, you threw it at me, Mark. You didn't put did. that in the script. But uh, nah. <laughs> look, I think all of us are a little overwhelmed uh, as we come into Christmas and the new year. But uh, taking the question from a climactic point of view, I'm really looking forward to 2019 because I've learned a lot in 2018. It's more than the sentence. So what about you, Mark? It's been huge, 2018. If you told me at the start of the year that this is where we'd be, we'd be 36 episodes in. We've had yeah. 35 shows with amazing guests, with some of those guests coming back on as interviewers now. Um, mm. I'm really, I'm gobsmacked at where it's got to. And uh, just to speak sort of personally, I, I've had this dream for 15 years to be a podcaster. And this year, it's kind of started to happen. You know, it started with Climactic, with with the two of us jumping in to, to do this. And, and now I've got uh, a few clients now that I'm doing podcasts for and sort of more inquiries by the day. And it's it just really, uh, it's shocking, Rich. 2018's in a year of surprises. It is, it is, isn't it, Mark? It doesn't seem that long ago when we were just chatting on the uh, Facebook group, uh, Australian podcasters, about anybody know anything about Australian climate change podcasts. And it was from that, uh, the power of ideas and uh, support from there. Uh, yeah, I, I hope you don't regret you putting your hand up, Rich, when I posted that, you know, back not, in uh, February or whatever it was. No, not at all. It was a February. Something like that, <laughs> My yeah. Word. My word. No, not at all. Not at all. I've, uh, I've enjoyed everything uh, about Climactic and uh, just watched it from where I am in New South Wales and from that perspective. And I have the privilege of editing most of your interviews, Mark, and I've seen how you've grown as an interviewer uh, at times when the interviewee wants uh, to talk, you know, now how to let them go and you can get some really good interviews that way. And uh, as the years progressed, Mark, I've seen that uh, the interviews have, have improved and become more interesting. That's a relief. That's really good. <laughs> um, we do have some really good ones that are in the can actually for next year that were, that could have gone up sort of over this Christmas New Year period. But, um, we have decided to make this show coming out on the 20th, our last episode until next year. Uh, we'll be back on January 10th. Thank you for saying that, Rich. And I look forward to a lot of opportunities in, in next year to really improve on that interviewing front as well and continue like it's been really great getting some some bigger names on the show but i really enjoy talking to the volunteers at groups and mm. people i feel i can really relate to personally 
And that's a whole nother kind of kettle of fish of interviewing because people who've been in the media before, have been interviewed before, they kind of know the game and know what to do. Yeah. But um, yeah, the volunteers and stuff, you have to draw them out quite a bit. Yes. And it yeah. has been really fun to to learn and develop that. Maybe we should just sort of run through at the moment, Rich, what our kind of highlights of the year were in terms of those episodes. All right. Well, I'll um, start off with uh, an interview that I did with Elk Gibbs. Elk Gibbs was a councillor in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales, and uh, I used to live in the Blue Mountains. And she had some very interesting things to say. One of them that stuck in my mind, Mark, was that when I asked her about personal sustainability she said yes we do need to move towards more personal sustainability but we really do need to make sure that we put pressure on elected representatives to lobby our local council and being a councillor she understood that now that sort of put the seed in my mind as oh that's interesting i must admit i hadn't quite thought of that or to put it another way i hadn't thought it right through and it was confirmed when you interviewed Councillor Tim Baxter and also Councillor Cat Copsey. And Cat Copsey, I think, stood at the recent Victorian state election and did very well, did very well indeed. And both of them talked about that as well. Uh, the pressure that you get from the community is absolutely vital for councillors. And I know I tend to forget between elections, you know, the councillors are there, but they, they want yeah, to they know what we exist. think. Yeah. Mm, mm. What about you, Mark? Yeah, just to, to reinforce that one and kind of echo that a bit, that was a huge one for me because I've always cared a lot about politics. And you were right, though, Rich, that between the elections, we kind of do forget these people are there, especially at the local level where there isn't a lot of headlines, there isn't a lot of media coverage. Yeah. And the reason why they ran in the first place and why people were excited about them and voted for them is because they are people that want to do something positive. They do want to make a change. Mm. But as we learned, talking to L, talking to Tim, talking to Kat, they they do need our help with that. They do need to show that these great ideas they have have community support and have community backing. And and sadly, it sounded like they don't really get a lot of that feedback very often. So yeah, just to to echo what you said, um, both Tim and Kat are councillors on Port Phillip City Council here in Melbourne, and I've kind of adopted that as my local council to go and annoy. <laughs> um, I recently, in a question of how easy is it to get on the council agenda, I set myself this little challenge of, well, I'm I'm going to get on the agenda. I'm going to put something up. I'm going to see what happens. Mm. So I, I circulated a petition about a container deposit scheme for Victoria, which we don't have. And I got, you know, only about 50 signatures on it. But it was all I needed to, to feel confident in putting it forward, yep. got on the agenda, and the council did pass a an official statement of support for a container deposit scheme. And that going into the end of the year has been a huge help yeah. to this this big community we have in Victoria yeah. of people calling for this. And the councillors themselves are really happy that a member of the community stepped up and did something mm. and allowed them to do what they went in to do. What an example that is, Mark. Well done for that. And I know that other councils around Victoria will be starting to get uh, petitions, I think, Mark style. Uh, but that is a huge achievement. And from memory, I think you you got everyone except one of the the, the councillors. The mayor, was that right? Yeah, the, the mayor was the only vote against. And um, mm. I'm sure there's a story there. I haven't worked out why it is he, he voted against it. I know he's a member of Beach Patrol, which is this really great 
it deserves a whole episode, and that'll be coming soon. But it's this sort of franchise model of beach yes. cleanup groups. Yeah. Oh, okay. So the mayor, Dick Gross, is is a member of Beach Patrol. Beach Patrol is very much for a CDS, but Mayor Gross was against it. Um, but I have reached out to him. I have talked to him a little bit on Facebook, mm. and I will be talking to him again in the future. He actually lectures on climate change at one of the universities. So I'm really interested to know what his position is and sort of uh, what uh, uh, what reasoning he has. That sounds like a great interview for the New Year, Mark. Have you, have you thought yeah, of that? Yeah, there we go to tease, tease something for next season, I guess. And there'll be a whole episode as well about that petition process and how it worked and how other people can replicate that as well. Because I have to say, just very quickly, it wasn't hard. I came in right at the end. A lot of the work was already done. And I, I just kind of spiked the volleyball and, and got it over the line. Congratulations again, Mark. And I think that that'll be really interesting to uh, to hear that that episode indeed. Thank you very much, Rich. Okay, so we're trying to get through what we have learned over the last year, and uh, it's been significant for me. Now, I'm kind of the Grandpa Simpson of uh, Climactic. <laughs> um, Mark's the yes-we-can person, and I'm the no-you-bloody-can't. And uh, <laughs> we seem to get on quite well. But to be to be honest, I'm in my mid-50s now. I'm not young. And being part of Climactic, which was my second podcast, I've learned a lot more than I have, uh, I think, in the last 20, 30 years or so. And I'm glad that I do think that, you know, you're never too old to learn because I think my learning curve over the last year or so has been absolutely amazing. And I think you just said that February we first chatted, Mark, it does seem like a few weeks ago. I've mentioned that the one of the things I've learned was the benefits of putting pressure on elected reps. And, uh, there's a lot of other things I've learned as well. I moved out to New South Wales country three years ago, and I think I brought with me the idea that uh, people out here are very much anti-climate change action just because of what they are. And I couldn't have been more wrong. I couldn't have been more wrong, Mark. It was something that I picked up quite early just by talking to people, farmers and uh, business people. But out here in the in the bush... The farmers are the canaries in the coal mines, if, if if you want to put it that way. They see climate change on the ground, and there's a lot of farmers that have been farming for generations. Let's say they you know their fa- their fathers and mothers and their grandparents, and they go back a long way here, and they they're harvesting weeks and weeks earlier. They're seeing it on the ground before a lot of people. We are seeing now, Mark, that the traditional political party, the Nationals of the Bush are losing a lot of ground, an awful lot of ground. There's a group now called Anyone But The Nats that is picking up a lot of support, coming out of Canberra, I think, Canberra country, but uh, now picking up support in New South Wales. And the main theme that comes through from their point of view is that the nationals are not doing enough on climate change, that they just follow liberal policy blindly, and as a result, they're losing a lot of support out here, Mark. It's, uh, It's desperate times for them. I'm not sure if the Nationals have got it in them to introduce progressive uh, climate change action, but they're certainly getting a lot of pressure from people in the bush, uh, from farmers that want change. And that was one learning process that was something that I I didn't realise. And I must admit that I learned pretty quickly when I came out of here. 
I've since read a book by a farmer called Charles Massey, and I do recommend it. It's called uh, Call of the Reed Warbler. And he changed his ways of farming because he could see climate change. He could see the problems that the old ways of farming were was bringing. And he's brought regenerative agriculture to his part of the of the world, and now he's spreading it all over the world. I think he's uh, released his book in, in America. Is that right, Mark? Yeah, he's just gone through a, a pretty big book tour, I think, over in the States. Well, I know one of the big podcasts, Nori, will interview him. Is that is that correct? Yeah, they've just interviewed him last week, and they uh, sent a message especially saying, thank you, Rich, for the questions. Fantastic. That's great. I I do recommend that book. So I'd just like to end my spray. I can, I can hear Mark start. <laughs> Champing at the bit there, ready to go. So I just in my spray that I have learnt a lot of positive things over the last year, and for that I'm very grateful, Climactic and Mark. So some of the interviews that really struck me were ones with Beth Hill, Liz O'Dwyer, Liz Bastian and Lee Baker. All of them had interesting ideas, positive ideas and thoughts about how we can change, and that really made me sit up and think. And I'd just like to put one one thing that I was introduced to with uh, with Lee Baker was the drawdown book that was ed- edited by Paul Hawken. And uh, uh, I, w- I wonder, have you got that yet, Mark? Yeah, I'll, I'll just say that Rich, very kindly for, for Christmas, they started off the Climactic Lending Library in Melbourne, and that will be a collection of books available to the community out here. If anyone yep. li- would like to check one out for me to have a read, and yeah, Drawdown arrived just a couple of days ago. I can't right wait day. to tuck into it that over the uh, holiday period. Fantastic. Okay, I'd just like to finish my spray, Mark, with uh, just a mention of the kids' school school strike. Now, we've just had a uh, very well-organised school strike by children across Australia, and they are absolutely sick of the no action from the government, and they're taking things into their own hands. Now, I've been... Absolutely thrilled in one part that these kids are taking action and disgusted on another in that the reaction from the government has been, well, you should be studying to build mines and things like that. What a reaction that is, and that that really angers me. But I'm just going to ignore that part of it and just say that the positive action of striking by students makes me feel really good, and uh, it gives me great hope that the future in climate change, as with other issues is in good hands. Beautiful. So I I was struck by that as well, Rich. I got to take part in the school strike here in Melbourne, which means I was walking behind very much in support of the kids. A lot of the the people I'd met through Friends of the Earth doing the Act on Climate miniseries were the wardens of that day. So I was running around with all the the orange vest-clad people keeping all the marchers safe as they marched down Collins Street from the Parliament through the CBD of Melbourne. It was it was incredible feeling to be out there in these streets with this this thousand strong mass of young people chanting they want action on climate change. And of course, one of the big inspirations for that march was Greta Thunberg. Thunberg, I'm going to say it terribly, the, uh, the Swedish young woman who's been on strike for climate for months from school. Greta was recently at COP24 and she spoke at the General Assembly. And her speech has really, I think, taken the world's a bit by shock. It's been a very powerful moment. And I, I, ever since that, I've been very actively following her Twitter feed. And and I'd love to maybe engage with her a bit in the new year. But I know she's very full on at the moment. But something she said the other day really caught my eye. And that's this recent tweet from her, actually, as I record this just 14 hours ago 
on the uh, the 17th. She said, as soon as our politicians, the media, and our society start treating the climate crisis as the crisis it is, we will no longer need climate conferences like the COP24, because then all of our time will be spent on cutting emissions and changing our society into a sustainable one. Isn't that an amazing thing to say? We were discussing just off air about the, the COP24 and uh, in particular the Australian government's lack of action there, cowardice I think you could call it, and here's somebody coming along saying, well, we don't really need it anyway. I'm really impressed by that. Uh, I think she's done an amazing job. And I hope, uh, as I say, that uh, there are many other kids at the same age that are willing to talk about the same thing. So talking about COP24, Rich, I'm speaking just for myself here. I'm curious if it's the same for you, though. I didn't know much about what COP was. I, I knew this was the 24th such meeting, and this is now the the third or fourth after the Paris Agreement was signed. and I didn't know what it looked like. I don't know what scientists' involvement with this was. Um, we actually have a bit of tape here from a climate scientist who was visiting Melbourne from Potsdam, Germany, where he works at the, the Climate Change Impact Research Center. So they are a group of 300 scientists actually doing the hard work of telling us what climate change is going to do to the world what impacts we're going to feel. I did a, a full interview with him. was a lot better than going to Potsdam for that. He was already in Melbourne. But I've just got a little bit of that interview lifted out here, talking about what scientists are watching while COP24 is on. And it's it's pretty interesting. What aspect of the conference are you guys sort of watching the most closely? Is it Are you looking for announcements about science from other working groups or other countries? Or are you really watching to see what the politicians do with it now? Because this is a cop where it's not about the scientists showing their findings so much as it's about seeing what the politicians are going to do about the science. Yeah, we, we're looking at the politicians. We're looking at their decisions. So we are kind of following right now. Basically, this cop has the aim of putting some or getting some life into that Paris Agreement. So in Paris, there were lots of decisions taken or lots of processes introduced, but there's no, wasn't really clear how those processes should work. For example, these nationally determined contributions. Every country has to say what it will do about reducing emissions. Now it comes to the point where you have basically have to find a way how that can be counted, how all these emissions can be counted in a, in a fair and, and, and reproducible way and what countries have to do to basically raise their ambitions. Yeah, It has to be uh, nailed down right now. Otherwise, it will just take another year or another year. So we need to we need the details now so we can actually work with the details to, to, to reach those climate targets. The kind of issue is a little bit that Poland seems to be really interested in having an, an, an output of that conference and having an agreement in the end, but with uh, the fear that they might just avoid talking about details so much, so they just won't have an agreement in the end, that's solid, but then they might just cross out so many parts that were undecided, and in the end, these then basically... Uh, just kick down the road. Yeah, they just, yeah, we have to wait for them to be decided on for, for the next conferences. So we're looking at really at the politics, and also how different players come in, like the role of Saudi Arabia, uh, looking at the US. It's interesting that talking to people that participated at the conferences, the US is really, really good. They're really constructive. So the people that have been working on, they're working on these deals and in these conferences have been working there for, for many years. And they do try to be really constructive. And they just basically do their job and don't really care so much what's going on home in Washington. They're more reliant, reliable in these, conf in these conferences than you might think they are. 
so it's uh, that's good news. So, but we kind of like it depends on many things, and of course the ministers will come in next week or this week. Uh, so we'll see what 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 survives in the end. But we are kind of really uh, interested in the bigger picture. So that was Tobias Giger, a climate research scientist in Potsdam, and we'll have the full interview with him in the new year. But for right now, just talking about COP24, which is only wrapped up just a few days ago. Rich, did you know much about the size of COP24 or, or what the conference actually looks like? No idea, I must admit. And I know you've done some research on this, Mark, but I only have so no far idea as if... I've been to the official website of the conference and <laughs> copied out some data. But um, yeah, if you had a guess, Rich, sort of ballpark figures, how many people are attending COP24? What would you guess in the range of, of thousands? I'd like to include the protesters because I think they're ah. more important than the people there. So what what would that be? Uh, would we be talking around 20,000 if we include the protesters? I don't have a count on the number of protesters, I'm afraid. All right. But yep. that's a very good point. Um, mm. the, the grand total of people involved in the summit was close to 30,000. 28,141, oh, yes. My, my word. And they've all got to fly from somewhere yeah, well, to get there. Well, there is and a just local think staff. Of the, uh, the, the think staff. of the, the carbon footprint there. Yes, that's Jeez. right. The staff mm. count, including technical staff, security, secretarial staff, is 6,500 people. So if you exclude them, and they're probably more locals, that's still yeah. a subtotal of 21,000 people. 1,500 from the media... 6,000 from non-government organizations. Yeah, just, it's huge. I, I have problems with these big meetings. I know that uh, the launch of uh, We Don't Have Time earlier this year, which continues, actually. It's the, a Swedish climate change conference they did all online, and it was just a matter of logging in and listening to the launch and watching the launch. You can even put tweets up, which I mm. did. And I managed to sneak Climactic's <laughs> name up on the uh, the launch. And, uh, I wish I'd taken a, a screenshot of it because it looked quite good. I just have problems with these climate change conferences and everybody flying to various places and then next year flying to another place. Well, if you're serious, how about making putting it all online so everybody has access to it and we can check in at the various feeds and conferences and make our own minds up. I'm not sure. What do you think about that, Mark? Do you yeah, think we should put it all You're not alone in feeling discomfort with the amount of carbon that goes into these conferences and the amount of just sort of bureaucracy that gets layered on top. But because I'm new to the space, and this has been the whole point for me of doing Climactic, is talking to people with different opinions and understanding where they're coming from, is it seems to me a little bit like we, we're, the, we're people, both of us rich, that want action on climate change. We want acknowledgement by government and we want real substantive action. And, and sadly, that doesn't happen without all of this bureaucracy happening before, all these gears turning. And mm. that doesn't get done as well uh, when you're not face to face with someone. And and you just reading over the last couple of days, the amount of press coverage of the arguments that have been happening there you, with Brazil at one point was causing issues with the emissions uh, measuring standards that were going to be used. And they got they got yelled down and they got put back sort of in place. Uh, same a little bit with the states, Saudi Arabia and Russia, now the kind of big three obstructionists. If this was all happening remotely, I, I think there'd be a lot more potential for obfuscation and hiding. And as much as I hate the impact, I mean, like, there's going to be a lot more people traveling over Christmas than there will be traveling to COP. 
I do see your point, Mark, but uh, at the same time, I'm seeing seeing ridiculous things as far as these conferences go, where they literally argue for hours over one word in a document. Uh, I think there was there was an example of that at COP24 when there was a difference between accept and uh, implement, something like yeah, that. Yeah, between, uh, between welcoming sort of and, and accepting or you know, welcoming right. the outcome or welcoming the completion of the report. I think in a strange way, Rich, this is a sign that we do have good transparency about what's going on. Like the scene from within the, the Palace of Versailles when they're saying the Treaty of Versailles to end World War One would have been just as ridiculous and crazy. But that's – we're sadly – we're talking – we're using a diplomatic process to try to solve a huge industrial issue. Um, unfortunately, it's the best process we currently have from our current governments – Again, Mark, yeah, I do see your point, and you're very correct. I'm just thinking, though, that if we did have something like the COP24 online, where people could comment and put pressure on from all over the world, and if it's such an issue such as climate change that needs action now, the IPCC report says we've got 12 years to act otherwise, you know, there are dire consequences, and we see obfuscation around the countries that are, as you call them, obstructionists, a very good word, um, that are just there to obscure text. And once this becomes noticed, if people are online and they're watching, then if we can put pressure on them, and I'm talking about people all over the world that are logging in, then that has a different thing rather than being a protester that's locked out of the building and has no no impact. Just a thought. Yeah, I, I agree with the advantages of doing it that way. And, and we've already mentioned them before, but that is why it's so great that we don't have time is doing what they're doing. Um, mm. I got introduced to them through you, Rich. You started talking to the founder, Ingmar Rensog from Sweden. Yes. Um, and it's been great being exposed to what they're doing, following them, interacting a bit with Ingmar myself as well. And their most recent conference uh, happening only a couple of weeks ago with the, the Club of Rome, which is this, this famous sort of uh, global development group. Um, they did outline a climate emergency plan and it's the kind of thing that yeah it's a conference anyone can go because it's online uh there's no barrier to entry really Mm, and so if we want that to be the template if we want that to be more of where the attention is paid then luckily we can kind of vote with our feet and as citizens attend these things participate learn and then let our mps know that this is where we want your focus to be not on sending a few dozen diplomats along with our chief environment denial minister to Poland. And I got to say, I, I registered for the one a couple of weeks ago and I was planning on attending and it was at 2 a.m. because oh, of the yes. time delay <laughs> and I didn't make it. Um, so I'm not perfect about saying this, but I, I can say that I see why that's a better model. And luckily it exists and we can yes. populate it, we can give it attention and increase its popularity. Just reminded there about uh, what Tim Baxter said in the interview about being pushing for council elections to be online so everybody can be part of it. And he said this was part of the, uh, you know, bringing pressure on councillors uh, that we mentioned earlier. Yeah, with their Facebook live streaming of the council meetings. Yes, yes. Which is just a baby step. But yeah, there's already been a, a kind of a marked difference in the amount of people paying attention, uh, the amount of transparency. Mm. And for the simple fact that, you know, I got along to that council meeting, I got to speak, and then I had something to share about that. I didn't have to describe it to people. I could say, hey, go and have a look. Look yes. at how easy it is and how non-threatening this is. 
And I think the ability to have that video is going to be really good for me to convince other people to do this as well. So it is a, a step in the right direction. Yeah, I'm just going to move on there, Mark. I'm just going to ask you a question. When I interviewed Liz Bastian and I asked her about the Big Fix magazine, which is her version of fixing the media instead of the top-down Murdoch-dominated media. So this was a grassroots-level magazine, online magazine, Facebook page that she runs for her community. It sort of struck a chord with me, and I learned that change is actually possible, but we just need to focus on those people that are making a change and not, as Liz says, if it bleeds, it leads. Now, we've done a bit of that, or should I say you've done a bit of that, Mark, with the Storytellers competition. I wonder if you could just go into that for the listeners a bit more. Yeah, it was an idea that I had that really was just an extension of things that I've I've seen before and I've been lucky enough in some cases to be a part of. So I've always been someone that loves watching TED Talks. I like reading articles on the internet. I like being well-informed. But And this is why I started Climactic as well, is because I couldn't find that level of content and that quality and that media about the most important thing that always seemed to be left out. There, there wasn't enough people, it seemed to me, talking about climate change. Yeah. So a couple of years ago, while I was in China, while I was an English teacher, I, I was then sort of going through my, my metamorphosis to not just abstractly caring about climate change, wanting to do something about it, because mm. living in China, I was living in a post-climate change world in a lot of ways. We had terrible air quality. It was affecting not only quality of life of people, but but life expectancy. It was I, I saw some grim things. And while I was there, the University of Arizona in the States, which has an amazing climate change program, and their English department hosted, has actually hosted for several years now, a climate change storytelling contest and for the written word. So I, I wrote a story for that, and I submitted, and I I didn't really hear much back, I don't think. But Looking then at the the published winners, I can see that you know, I need a bit more practice, I think. Okay. But there were great stories to read. And because I was then getting involved in podcasting through Climactic, I thought, well, how about someone does something like that for storytelling, just orally, just telling a story? Yes. Seems to be a bit of a lost art. And I had the medium to then share the story once it was said. And I wanted to see how many students were interested in such a thing. So I worked with the student group. We got the word out as best we can. Although in hindsight, we could have done a lot more. We did get four amazing storytellers to step forward during a busy time of the school year, tell pretty amazing personal stories about what they were concerned about with climate change. And I'd say it was a pretty clear success. And I cannot wait to, to do that again, to, to broaden that out, to run that in more places, to work with people in other parts of the world who want to run that themselves. There's not much of a system to it at this stage. It can really be run very ad hoc. But um, yeah, it, it was a lot of fun, Rich. And thank you for bringing that up, because looking back on that, I think that was one of the highlights of the year. No, that was uh, that was excellent, Mark, and you deserve congratulations for organising it. And a star-studded team of experts that judged. They were. They were absolute stars, and I, I, my hats are off to them. My hats? My multiple hats, yes. <laughs> you can tell I'm sick. I'm so sorry. Oh, no goodness. worries. Okay, just to summarise, uh, for me, Mark, I've learned over the last year, and I'm looking forward to this Going forward into 2019, I've learned that change is actually possible. And 
we can save our world. So going back to the very beginning, Mark, when you asked me to summarize in a sentence, it's taken me the whole episode, <laughs> but there you have it. What about you? Do you, want, do you want my summary in a sentence? In a sentence, please. Well, I started this year terrified about climate change. I sadly still am, but I've learned I'm not alone in that. There's a lot of solace to be taken in being able to talk about being terrified. And I am more hopeful now than I was at the start of the year. So that's something. All right. I'll give you about, about three or four sentences. <laughs> so that, that's fine. A lot of commas. All right, mate. Well, I'm going to end by saying thank you very much for allowing me to be part of Climactic. I really appreciate it. I've gone through a huge learning process. So thank you, Mark Spencer. And I look forward to working with you in the, the new year. And thank you, Rich Bowden. This, this would not be happening without you jumping on from day one. And I, I always feel sheepish when you say, you know, thank you for letting me be part because I, I'm just as much a part of this as, as you are. This is our thing. And I'm really excited about next year and having this first year under our belts. And I just, maybe we could just talk quickly about Maxine and Georgia. Yeah, very good point, Rich. So from the start, uh, and, and kind of a weird thing for a podcast, I wanted to start this not so I could talk, not so it was just an excuse for you know me and a couple mates to talk about you know pop culture or politics or whatever interested us. Climate change interests me, sure, but if it wasn't like as pressing of an issue, I wouldn't want to be spending my time talking about this or sort of dealing with it. I've got lots of other interests. Um, unfortunately, I don't have that luxury knowing what I know. And as soon as other people learn more, I don't think they've got the luxury of turning off either. So instead of Climactic being a way for me to have a show, it was literally trying to create something that I needed. I needed to hear what other people were going through, how they were handling climate change, what they were doing about it. And not just from my neck of the woods and my backyard and my city. I wanted to hear about people of all walks of life dealing with climate change. So right from the start, it was an idea that I could interview people in Melbourne. Rich, you could interview people in the Central West, New South Wales, and you've done an amazing job at that. I wanted to open it up and also let other people have this empowering opportunity of speaking to people, of, of interviewing local councillors or business people or volunteers at environmental groups. And that brings us to Maxine and Georgia. Maxine was our first guest on the show. I met her at the Ballarat Begonia Festival while she was a volunteer at the New Joneses, which is an environmental group, essentially. And right from the start of, of interviewing her, I thought, she's got radio experience. She's enjoying this a lot. Maybe she'd enjoy doing these kind of conversations as well from the other side of the mic. And luckily she agreed. In fact, it was just the right thing she was looking for. It was an opportunity to keep on with the radio skills she already had when, you know, she is, she's, by the time you hear this, she might very well have given birth to her first child. So working around a radio schedule wouldn't be very possible for her. So we're really grateful that Maxine has already brought us this amazing double episode, an interview with Damien Cole an independent candidate down in Victoria's Surf Coast. Who also did very well too, Mark, I noticed. Yeah. A pol political junkie. I uh, I do things like watch Anthony Green and uh, and the Victorian election, and I kept my eye out for that. So I just wonder how much Maxine increased the vote, but fantastic work, Maxine. 
I, th- I think I think at least a few, you know, at least a few. Exactly. Yes. So we're really looking forward to what she brings us in the new year. I, she's going to be flat out, but um, she's just the kind of person that we are looking to bring on to Climactic to be an interviewer. And that brings us to Georgia as well. You haven't heard from Georgia yet. She's going to be a new interviewer on Climactic in the new year. Yeah, I won't spoil it with her background or anything just yet, but you will get an introduction. And I really look forward to what she brings us. And I hear that she's got a bit of a background in regenerative agriculture, Mark. I'm really looking forward to that. Yeah, it's right up your alley, Rich. You're going to really like that. Absolutely. So if you listening out there have enjoyed what we've had on the show, the conversations we've brought, the kind of experiments we've done around this mini-series at the Victorian election, uh, some more experiments I'll be bringing you in the new year as well, and you think, well, I'd like to give that a go, we'd love to have you. Honestly, it's a very, very open door here, and we are very much a podcasting collective rather than just a small group of people making this show. We're looking to expand this tent. And if you are an environmental organization wanting to make a mark in the up, coming federal election or the New South Wales election, which is due in March, you'd like a platform, just let us know and we'll be happy to talk to you. Absolutely. Well, Rich, I think I'm about the end of my tank. I've been sick for the last week. <laughs> I desperately need a bit of a break over this holiday period. So um, All right. you've been fantastic. I think we have managed to crack the code a little bit on this sort of discussion, contemporaneous, unscripted thing we've got going on here. And um, I think we should end on a high note, eh? (laughs) Fantastic. I agree, Mark. All right. And thanks very much to listeners for listening. And I would imagine growing with us during the year. Much appreciated. Yeah. Thank you guys so much for listening. We really wouldn't be doing this without you. And thank you for your support, your ongoing listenership, and for telling people about the show as well. So, for some final thank yous for the year, it's been such an honor and a privilege, and I know that's a cheesy statement, but it's true, to have such amazing guests from all walks of life come on Climactic this year, spending some of their time to take a gamble on a new podcast and a new team, not knowing how it would end up sounding. It's been a pleasure, and I hope I've made you all sound half as good as you all deserve. To Rich Bowden, my partner in crime here, you're such a great, talented, patient, profoundly humble man, so I know you'll be blushing when you hear this praise, and that makes me happy. Our amazing producer, who's also my best and oldest friend, thank you, Hazel Fidicaro, formerly Caleb, who we're all thrilled to say has transitioned and is very, very happy. To our designer, Abigail Hawkins, who I still haven't met yet in person. I look at your design of our logo every day of my life. It is the lock screen of my phone, and it makes me smile without fail. Thank you. And to my friend and composer, Greg Grassi, thank you for the tremendous theme song, which gets me pumped every time I hear it, which I'm ashamed to say is probably too often. Our growing team of contributors and interviewers, Maxine and Georgia, it's so validating and exciting to have you on board, to see the value in what we're trying to create here as a platform for real people to grapple with climate change in a human and approachable manner. I feel you joining this team has been truly the best thing to happen this year. Thank you, and welcome aboard. And our senior advisor, Gretchen Miller, 
to just know you're looking over our shoulder, listening to our work, would be amazing enough. To have the opportunity to run stuff by you, get your advice, pick your brain, is tremendous. And we're deeply grateful. So on behalf of the whole team, I've been your host, Mark Spencer. And thank you all for joining us in this climactic year of 2018. Bring on the new year. We'll be back January 10th, and we'll talk to you then. The Climactic Collective. This show is produced by Hear Media, a boutique audio agency in Narm, Melbourne. To learn more and get in touch, head to hearmedia.studio. That's H E R E media.studio.